My name's Adam. If we haven't met, it's really great to have you with us today and to open up this um, amazing passage of Scripture. Now, a few years ago, before Molly and I, my wife and I, had kids, we were driving home from a holiday in northern New South Wales. And we were driving through this tiny little town called Broadwater. It's uh, on the Clarence River. It's right next to the, the Pacific Highway. And right in the middle of this town, there is this beautiful old church building. It's got vaulted ceilings and arched doorways and just a whole lot of character. But sadly, this church building, it was no longer home to a church community. A number of years earlier, the church had, had, had to sell the building and it had been converted into a cafe called Our Daily Bread. Now, Molly and I are driving along. We don't have the kids in the car yet, so there's no World War III in the back. And so we decide, hey, why not stop and have a coffee? So we stopped and we, we checked it out. And as I was sitting in this building, I couldn't help but wonder, what happened to this church? Why did they have to shut down and sell the building? What happened to the people that once called this church home? And sadly, this is not a, a, an uncommon experience in our country. You can go to lots of different places and you will find lots of old church buildings that are no longer home to a church community. They're now cafes or op shops or art galleries or even homes. Now, the truth is there may be good reasons for this. Maybe the church simply outgrew the building and, and had to move somewhere else. Maybe they moved into a more central location. But for many of these churches, I suspect that this wasn't the case. And these old church buildings that we see right throughout countries and uh, right throughout towns and cities in Australia, they now stand as a reminder that there used to be a community of people that gathered here to worship God, but not anymore. And it begs the question, how can a healthy church dwindle away like this? How can a thriving church slide towards death? Well, today we are looking at Jesus' words to a church which is in danger of doing precisely this. Jesus effectively says to this church, if you do not take action, you will die. I will remove your lampstand. Now, as you've heard, we're kicking off a new sermon series today that we've called Dear Church, the seven letters of Revelation 2 to 3. We're spending the next seven weeks looking at these seven messages which Jesus gives to seven different churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Revelation is the last book of the Bible. It's also a book that tends to make people either really excited or really nervous. And it certainly is a strange or, or, or an unusual book. It has some strange imagery in it, which has led to some strange interpretations of it, which has led to many of us avoiding it. But to avoid the, the book of Revelation would be a mistake. You know, the book actually begins uh, this way in verse 3 of chapter 1. It begins by saying, blessed are those who hear it, hear the words of this book, and take to heart what is written in it. 
we're promised a blessing from God if we will read this book and hear it and obey it. Now, of course, we're not looking at the whole book in this series. We might get to that one day. We're just dipping our toe in the water, and we're looking at chapters 2 and 3, these seven letters which Jesus sends to seven different churches. But it's going to be helpful for us to know some context and background of the whole book. Now, first of all, Revelation was written by a man named John. John was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and towards the end of his life, when he was probably about 80 years old, he was exiled to the island of Patmos. Patmos was an island for prisoners and political dissidents, kind of like Guantanamo Bay or Alcatraz, or I guess you could say Australia many, many years ago. Now, John was sent away by the Roman authorities mainly because he would not bow the knee to Caesar and he would not stop talking about Jesus. And while he's on the island of Patmos, John is given a vision from God. This is how the the book begins. Chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to John to show his servants what must soon take place place. John is given a vision of what is to come. John is given a glimpse into unseen realities. In fact, this is what the word revelation means. It's the Greek word apocalypsis. We get our word apocalypse from it. And it literally means to unveil, to reveal, to pull back the curtain, to open the door, to take off the cover. This is what revelation represents. It is an unveiling of God's plans and God's purposes. And this is really important for us to understand because many people read the book of Revelation as if it's like a mystery novel. There's all of these different details which we need to try to decipher to crack the secret code. And there certainly are some strange details in there, but the purpose of Revelation is not to hide. It's not to obscure. The purpose of Revelation is to reveal. It's to show us clearly our world and our future so that we will follow Jesus faithfully in the present. Here's the way one writer puts it. Nancy Guthrie has written a a, popular lay-level commentary on the book of Revelation. She says, Revelation is actually less about when Jesus will return, trying to, to crack the code, trying to predict it, trying to work it all out, and more about what we are to do, who we are to be, and what we can expect to endure as we wait for Jesus to return to establish his kingdom. Revelation is not some secret code that we need to try to crack. Revelation is an unveiling of God's plans and purposes so that we'll follow Jesus faithfully in the present. And this leads us to the second background or context uh, information that's important for us to understand about the book. Secondly, Revelation is a pastoral letter that was written to real specific churches. I mean, here's how John addresses his letter in verse 4 of chapter 1. He says, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Revelation is a real letter written to real churches full of real people struggling with real issues. 
I wonder if you knew that about this book. These churches, we're told, are in the Roman province of Asia, which is not Asia as we know it today, but the western part of modern-day Turkey. You can see on the screen there the churches which it was addressed to are highlighted. The church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, and Pergamum, and Thyatira, and Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And actually, that's the order of which the, the churches will appear in the letters, because that is the order in which you would drop letters off if you took a, a tour that day. You would go up and then down and finish in Laodicea. The point is that these are seven real churches, and this is, uh, these churches are the ones to whom the book of Revelation is addressed. And they're also the ones to whom these seven letters from Jesus are addressed. Now, the question is, why these seven churches? Why them? Why not others? Why not more? I mean, there were more churches in the Roman province of Asia. There were churches in Colossae and Herapolis and Troas and so on and so forth. Why these seven in particular? Well, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that seven is an important number in the Scriptures. The number seven symbolizes wholeness or completeness. So God created the world, the universe, in seven days. He did a perfect job of it. Just like the seventh day completes the week. And so the point is that these letters, they represent a message not just to these seven ancient churches, but actually to all churches at all times and in all places. And so as we read and study these letters, we're not only hearing Jesus' message to these ancient churches, we're also hearing Jesus' message to our church. These letters are a little bit like a mirror. We can look into them to examine ourselves, to examine our church. In fact, I'll put it this way. Reading Revelation 2 to 3 is a little bit like reading someone else's mail. Now, not a good thing to do. Don't do it. But if you did do it, you opened up someone else's mail and you discovered that there was a letter for you in there. This is kind of what Revelation 2 and 3 is like. Now, the question is, are we going to listen to what Jesus says? Are we going to hear what he has to say to us? Now, we're going to begin today by looking at the first letter, the letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, it makes sense that Ephesus is the first letter. It was the nearest city to Patmos. But it was also a very significant city. Ephesus was a center of business and commerce. It had one of the largest ports in the world, in the ancient world. Ephesus was a significant religious center. It actually had the temple of Artemis in its um, city, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. Just this incredible temple precinct dedicated to the worship of this false god, Artemis. Ephesus was also a significant political center. I mean, this was a major city in the ancient world. And so it makes sense that a church was planted in Ephesus. And this is what we see in Acts 19, that the Apostle Paul spends over two years establishing a thriving church in the city of Ephesus. Then later on, he'll write the letter of Ephesians to this congregation. And over time, Paul, Apollos, Timothy, and even John himself will spend some time teaching and leading in the church at Ephesus. This was an influential church in an influential city. And now, about 30, 40 years after they got started, Jesus has a message for them. 
And what is he going to say to them? Well, it begins in an unusual way. Look there at verse 1, chapter 2, if you have your Bibles in front of you. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, why would it be addressed to the angel of the church and not just to the church? This is actually how all seven letters are addressed, to the angel of the church in Smyrna and and so on and so forth. Why? Well, the answer is it's not exactly clear. Some suggest that this is a, a guardian angel of the church. Others suggest this is like a personification of the church. It's a way of speaking about the church as a whole. Some suggest that this is the the senior minister or the lead pastor of the church. But I just think that that a lead pastor made that suggestion somewhere along the way. Whatever the reason may be, the point is clear. Jesus has a message for this church at Ephesus, and he is uniquely qualified to deliver it. Why? Well, look at what he goes on to say, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, it's, it's quite a description, isn't it? But this is a description of Christ. And this, again, is how all of the letters begin, with an address to the angel of the church and then with a different description of Christ. Now, each of these descriptions sound somewhat cryptic, but they're actually drawn directly from chapter 1, where John was given a vision of the exalted Jesus. And we know from chapter 1 that the seven stars in Jesus' right hand, they refer to the seven angels of the churches. And we know that the seven golden lampstands among, among which Jesus walks, these refer to the seven churches. And so right up front, Jesus is giving his credentials. He is the one uniquely qualified to evaluate these churches. I mean, the fact that he holds the seven angels in his right hand, it's a sign of his power and his authority. The fact that he walks among these seven golden lampstands, it's a sign of his love and care and attention to the church. He knows what is going on among his churches. He sees, he cares. Like a teacher walking through the classroom, he understands what is going on, he's attentive. And the question is, what has he seen among his churches? What is his evaluation? What does he have to say to the church at Ephesus? Well, there are three main things that he says to this church. There are three main elements to his letter to them. Jesus offers a compliment, a criticism, and a command. A compliment, a criticism, and a command. Let's look at these three things together. Jesus begins with a compliment. He must you know, know that you, you always do the compliment sandwich. Begin with the compliment first. Jesus actually compliments the church at Ephesus on three things. Firstly, their deeds. Look there at verse 2. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. The church at Ephesus was an active church. They were a busy church. They were a hard-working church. There were no passengers in this church. They were all studying the Bible. They were all visiting the sick. They were all caring for the lonely. They were all discipling young children. They were hard working. And Jesus says, this is a good thing. And so let me say to you, if you are involved in serving here at Oasis Church, if you are involved in serving in other Christian organizations and missions, 
If you are involved in serving Jesus, whether that's at home or at work, you might be tempted to think that no one sees, that no one cares, but Jesus sees your hard work, and it's pleasing to him. And so Jesus commends the Ephesians on their deeds, their hard work. Secondly, he compliments their determination. Look there at verse 3. He says, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now, Ephesus wasn't an easy place to be a Christian. There was some pressure on this church. In fact, there's a story in Acts 19, not long after the church got started, there was essentially a citywide riot in Ephesus. You see, this church, these Ephesian Christians, they had begun to draw people away from the worship of Artemis. Remember, I told you about the temple of Artemis that was in this city? Well, some people were leaving that behind and beginning to follow Jesus. Enough people that those who made um, statues of Artemis, the silversmiths, they began to get worried that they were going to be losing their livelihood, their work. No one would buy their statues anymore. And so they started this massive citywide riot against this church, against these Christians. Ephesus was not an easy place to be a Christian. But Jesus says now 30, 40 years later, he says, you haven't given up. You've persevered. You've been willing to endure opposition for my name. And he compliments them on it. He compliments their deeds. He compliments their determination. And thirdly, he compliments their doctrine. This is what we read in the second half of verse 2. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. Now again, you know, 30, 40 years earlier in Acts 20, the apostle Paul actually warned the Ephesian elders that there would be wolves that would come in among the flock. They would distort the truth. They would draw people away. He warned them about this, and it seems that they had listened. In fact, Jesus goes on in verse 6, and he says, You have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans. They're only mentioned twice in the Bible, and it's both times are here in Revelation chapter 2. But it seems that they were encouraging these Christians to compromise with the world around them. It seems that they were saying, You can worship Jesus and Artemis. It's okay, you can have both. It seems they were saying, you can follow Jesus and serve idols. You can love Jesus and live however you want to. And the Ephesian church and Jesus says to this, well, no, you can't. And so Jesus compliments them. They're, they're discerning. They, like, they love solid teaching from the Bible. They love sound doctrine. They reject false teaching. And so Jesus compliments them on their deeds, on their determination, and on their doctrine. Now, let's be honest. This sounds like a good church. Sounds like a church I'd like to be a part of. Hard work, determination, solid teaching from the Bible. Sign me up. And they, they're good things. Jesus says they're good things. And so before we move on, we should ask ourselves, would Jesus compliment us on these things? our hard work? Are you engaged in serving God and serving others? Our determination? Are you willing to even endure mistreatment for the name of Jesus? What about sound teaching? Do you, like, do you love sound doctrine? Are you able to, to recognize false teaching? 
These are good questions to ask ourselves because these are good things for us to pursue. But as Jesus goes on to reveal next, on their own, they're not enough. You see, you can be a busy, hardworking, determined church. You can be a church that's devoted to solid teaching from the Bible. But you can be cold and loveless on the inside. This is what Jesus goes on, at least to our second point, which is his criticism of the church at Ephesus. Look at what he says there in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Underneath all of their hard work and all of their determination, underneath all of their devotion to solid teaching, they were missing one key ingredient, love. It used to be there, but it's grown cold. And you know, in the Bible, the the relationship between Christ and the church, it's often compared to the relationship between a husband and a wife. You see that in Ephesians 5. And the truth is, this is a helpful comparison because this is often what can happen in marriage, can't it? You start out and you're deeply in love, lots of affection, lots of flowers and chocolates, little notes during the day, regular date nights, maybe even some extravagant gifts. It's sickening, really. (laughs) I can say that because my wife is at home with sick kids today, so I'm safe for a couple more hours. But then what happens? As your career ramps up, you get busier at work. You have to start paying the mortgage, so there's less date nights and flowers and gifts. You might get more responsibility at church. You throw some kids into the mix, maybe an unexpected diagnosis somewhere along the way, and all of a sudden you find that you and your spouse, you're busy doing lots of tasks. You're busy with lots of activity, Lots of sacrifice, lots of hard work, but there's not much love. You stop doing the things that you used to do. Less affection and intimacy, less date nights, less unhurried conversation. And in fact, when you do have conversations, it's about all that needs to get done. Lots of activity, lots of hard work, but not much love. This seems to be the situation at Ephesus. They've lost the love they had at first. Now, some people ask, love for who? Is this, have they lost their love for Jesus or have they lost their love for one another in the church? And the answer is yes. It's both. These two things are intimately connected. In fact, you can't have one without the other. When when your heart is filled with love for Jesus, it will overflow into love for others. In fact, John, the same John that wrote Revelation, he wrote other books of the Bible, including 1 John. And this is what he writes in chapter 4, verse 20. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. You can imagine these Christians at Ephesus, they're busy doing things for Jesus, but they're not spending time with Jesus. They're deeply devoted to the truth, but maybe they've become deeply critical of others. Now, before we move on to, to what Jesus says next, it might be worth asking ourselves, is this true of me? Have I lost my first love? 
Is my faith marked by lots of activity but little intimacy? Is my head full of knowledge but my heart lacking in love? I'll be honest, this can be a challenge for me. You know, it's a great privilege to serve in gospel ministry, to have time to pray and to study the Bible. But if I'm not careful, these things can easily slip into just a job that needs to be done. Just a task that needs to be ticked off the list because Sunday's coming again. Rather than an opportunity to know and love Jesus. Friends, if we don't pay attention, especially in a church like ours, uh, yeah, a church, I love it, we love solid and sound teaching from the Bible. Love that, it's a value of ours, it's important and it should be. But if we're not careful, we can easily end up in a place where we have lots of knowledge about Jesus but little love for Jesus. We can study the Bible to find the truth, but not be fueled to love Jesus and to love others. And this is Jesus' criticism of the church at Ephesus. They've lost their love. So what's the answer? What's the solution? Well, this brings us to our third and final point. We've seen Jesus give a compliment. We've seen him give a criticism And then he ends with a command. Actually, he ends with three commands. There's three things that he wants the church at Ephesus to do. The first thing he wants them to do is look back. That's what he says there in verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen. You know, the Ephesians hadn't always been a loveless church. When Paul earlier wrote the letter to them, the letter of Ephesians, he said... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. They were a loving church. And Jesus now wants them to look back. He wants them to remember what they once had. Now, what about you? If you've lost, if you would say, if I'm honest, I've lost my first love. Well, do you remember when you first became a Christian? Do you remember your enthusiasm and your joy? No one had to ask you or tell you to read the Bible. You wanted to. No one had to ask you to spend time with God's people. You loved to. And so Jesus now says to the Ephesians, he says, look back. Remember the love that you once had. But that's not all he wants them to do. He wants them to look back. You know, I imagine they're heading in the wrong direction. They're heading in a loveless direction. And Jesus says, stop. He says, look back. Look where you've come from. And then the next thing he says to them is, turn around. Face the other way. That's what he says there in verse 5. He says, repent and do the things you did at first. Now, repentance is such an important word in the Bible. And it sounds like a big and scary word, but it's actually a loving invitation from God. I mean, what does it mean? What does it mean to repent? To repent means to turn around to change your mind, to go in a different direction, to say to God, God, I was going in the wrong direction. I was heading away from you and your will, and I want to turn around and start heading in this direction. It's a loving invitation from God to come back to him, to return to him. It's a little bit like Google Maps. Google Maps is my savior. I'm terrible at directions. Now, imagine you're sitting in the car and you plug in the address and you're following the directions. What happens if you make a wrong turn? Does the phone say to you, you idiot, you ignored me, 
you're on your own now, you didn't listen to me, goodbye, and then shuts the app down. It's not what it does. It says, wrong way, turn around, go this way. It reroutes you to get you back on track. And this is what Jesus means when he says, repent. He's inviting us back to himself. Now, what does this mean practically? What does this look like? Well, this is what Jesus defines in the second part of the verse. He says, repent and do the things you did at first. Now, it's really interesting to me that Jesus talks about doing and not feeling. He doesn't say, feel the way that you used to feel. He says, do the things you used to do. Why? Because love is more than a feeling. Love is an action. Love is a verb. I mean, think about the the, the marriage example again. Why is it that marriages can sometimes find their way into this loveless territory? Why is it that married couples can sometimes fall out of love? Of course, that's a a complex question, but but often the answer is that because married couples stop doing what they used to do. I'm not saying that you're always going to have the time to go on these, you know, extravagant dates and buy all these expensive gifts. Uh, That's not realistic or necessarily even right. But if marriages are to remain healthy and loving, there needs to be an ongoing investment. Couples need to pay attention to each other, need to spend time with each other, need to keep doing what they used to do. And it's the same for our relationship with Jesus. There needs to be an ongoing investment. We need to keep doing those things which stir our hearts and our affections for Jesus. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't actually define what those things are for the Ephesians. He doesn't go on to give them a list of the things that they should do. I think they knew what they had to do. I mean, if you think about those times in your life when you had a, a deep love for Christ, a deep joy in Christ, what were those things that you were doing? What was fueling that? What were your priorities? I think it's a safe bet to say that it would have involved regular time in God's Word. It would have involved time in prayer, time with God's people, time of service and and generosity. And it definitely would have involved regularly hearing the gospel, the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ. These are the things that we do at first, which fuel our joy in Christ. And so Jesus is saying to the Ephesians, do the things that you did at first. He's almost saying, hey, get back to basics. And he says it with a sense of urgency. Jesus goes on in verse 5 to give a very strong warning. He says, if you do not repent, if you do not turn around, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He's saying, if you keep going down this loveless path, you will cease to be a church. I will shut you down. Your building will become a cafe. Why? Because Jesus is serious about his witness in the world. When Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another, he meant it. And so Jesus is saying, to us, to his church. Look back, turn around. And then finally he says, and once you've turned around, once you're facing in the right direction, look ahead. 
That's what he says there in verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Remember the tree that was in the Garden of Eden that's been barred from us ever since our rebellion against God? Jesus is going to give us the right to go back, which is in the paradise of God. And so the question before us today is, will we listen? Will we hear? Will we pursue and practice not just hard work, not just determination, not just devotion to sound doctrine, but love? Love for Christ, love for one another. Will Oasis Church be marked by these things? Will we hear what Jesus is saying to us? Will we be victorious? That's the word that Jesus uses there. That's a, a big word, isn't it? it it's, it's an intimidating word. I mean, we don't often feel victorious, do we? And so what does it mean? It's an important word because Jesus says to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Well, to put it as simply as I can, it means to hold on. It means to cling to Jesus, to keep trusting Jesus, the truly victorious one, the one who lived and died and rose again for us, the one who won the victory on our behalf. It means we don't let go of him. We don't give up on him. We keep hold of him. Think about it this way. I was reading a, a book with my kids earlier this week. It was all about the different sea creatures in the ocean. And I got to the page about the blue whale. Now, the blue whale is a majestic creature, largest animal in the world ever. Grow up to 30 meters long. They travel 7,000 kilometers a year, and they can dive 500 meters underwater. Just a majestic creature. Now, on that very same page as the blue whale, with some barnacles, which were clinging to the side of this blue whale. Now, barnacles are not quite as impressive as the blue whale, are they? No one pays hundreds of dollars to go on a boat to go barnacle watching. <laughs> and yet, these barnacles travel 7,000 kilometers every year. They can dive 500 meters underwater. Wherever the blue whale goes, they go. Why? Simply by clinging to the blue whale. And friends, this is true for us. We can be victorious. We can inherit everything. How? Simply by holding on to Jesus. By clinging to him and never letting go. And this is how we can be victorious. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message to Oasis Church. Lord, if we would admit that we've lost our first love, if we would admit that we've been busy doing things, lots of hard work, 
lots of Bible study. But if we're honest, underneath all of that, there's been little love for you. There's been little love for your people. Would you help us to make a course redirection today? Would you help us to turn around, to stop walking down that loveless path and to start pursuing you, the God of love? And Lord, as we do that, would you help us to hold on? Help us to not let go, but to cling to Jesus, the author, perfecter, and finisher of our faith. We pray this in his good name. Amen.